Hello and welcome to the Two Guys Four Balls podcast. Hello and welcome to another Two Guys Four Balls podcast. This is Patrick. With me, as always, is Julius. And Julius, Super Bowl Fifty Eight is in the books. We both got it right, calling the Chiefs to win. Um, definitely a much closer game than probably a lot of people anticipated. Only the second time the Super Bowl is going to overtime. Um, and I know a lot of people were confused about the new overtime rules. So, um, yeah, yeah, in the postseason now. Not regular season, because regular season is still the same, where if you get a touchdown, you win the game if you receive the ball. Uh, in the postseason, no matter what happens, the other team gets the ball, Julius. And I, and I know a lot of people are confused about that. Um, apparently some 49ers players came out and said, uh, uh, we didn't know the rules, which I don't think you ever should come out and say that, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, it just looks bad. It makes it seem like they're trying to get, uh, Shanahan out out the door, um, by saying something like that. But, uh, it was a great game. Uh, it was definitely a defensive game, which we both, you know, we've been talking about the Kansas City defense all year. So that didn't surprise me. Um, and when Kansas City needed it the most, uh, obviously everyone's talking about how great Patrick Mahomes is. And Patrick Mahomes, uh, we've been talking about for two years. And I've had him up as it's Patrick Mahomes and everybody else in the league. I know other analysts are just now starting to get around to that because he's won three Super Bowls now. We saw we, we were saying that after his first Super Bowl win and then going to the Super Bowl and losing to the Buccaneers. But if you just watched him play, you knew this guy was in a league of his own. Uh, when it came to the quarterback position in the NFL. But um, their defense really stepped up from Julius uh, to win this game, in my opinion, because uh, when Patrick Mahomes threw that really bad pick, um, they held the uh, Niners to punting on that play. Or, no, Moody kicked a, no, Moody kicked a 53-yard field goal. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they they held they held they held the the Niners from from making a touchdown or getting any points off the turnover. Um, and, and, you know, just other times when the Niners had good field position, that defense really stepped up for the, for the chiefs and, and caused turnovers, you know, McCaffrey, you don't see him fumble much. They caused McCaffrey to fumble when they were driving. Um, and really when they needed to, uh, the chiefs defense stepped up and, and kept this game in check to keep it within striking distance for Patrick Mahomes. Um, you know, once again, everyone talks about Mahomes, this Mahomes, that, they were one for four in the red zone, uh, Julius. So, um, and the one touchdown they got in the red zone was after a punt hit off of the 49ers' leg. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, the offense wasn't doing much in this game at all uh, for the Chiefs until the fourth quarter and when they needed it the most, um, obviously, in overtime. So, uh, you know, Harrison Butker, uh, for me, would have been the MVP. Uh, not only did he say F you Jake Moody and your record that you just got in the Super Bowl and I'm going to break it but he came up big for them uh, multiple times um, at the end of this game as well so um, you know I'm not going to go over everything that happened however many billions of people watched the Super Bowl uh, I'm just talking about some of the big plays that happened Um, so yeah Valdez Scanling almost dropped that touchdown pass Julius so uh, always nervous when you're throwing it to him Um, but you know, for me, Julius, uh, Dre Greenlaw getting hurt, uh, trying to get onto the field, 
really, yep. really, I thought, turned this game around. Uh, Travis Kelsey before the injury, one catch for one yard. Travis Kelsey after the injury, nine catches for hundreds of, 100 yards, whatever he got. So um, it's just wild how big of a difference that injury made and that it didn't even happen while they were playing football. Like, he was trying to amp himself up. He was getting ready to run on the field and just collapsed. And that has literally been the bane of the 49ers' existence in the playoffs. I really hated to see it in the Super Bowl, uh, especially, like I said, that it was a non-contact, not even trying to make a play on the field. He was just trying to get onto the field. Um you could see their defense just change after that. Their defense was literally holding Mahomes and the Chiefs to pretty much nothing. They had a field goal in the first half, uh, and 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 it's just amazing um, how that changed this game. Obviously, people are looking at the the muff punt. Um, I, that's also a huge you know deal in this game because that got Kansas City up, uh, but. You know, the 49ers responded to this with a Juwan Jennings touchdown pass from Brock Purdy, and then the extra point gets blocked. So lots of things happened in this game for the 49ers where uh, it could have gone either way. Um, you know, so I, I think that injury really, really hurt them. And then obviously taking the ball first in overtime. This has been talked about on every thing I've seen this week, but um, I don't think I would have received the kick because – I, you can say your defense is gassed after they just went, you know, 64 yards in, in almost two minutes. Um, you can make whatever excuses you want. But to give Mahomes, as, as we talked about, to give Mahomes four downs, essentially, because, you know, they're going to go for it on fourth down, and they did, and they got it. Um, I just, I would have rather had them make the decision to go for it or kick a field goal versus you kick the 27-yard field goal, and now... You know they can either win the game or not win the game. Like you, everyone said, all the analysts that I've heard said, you know, you took you took the control out of your hands because I know you're saying your defense could control the game, but you know I would rather have my offense have the ball with the chance to win or go for two if that's what you want to do in that situation personally. So uh, I, I don't I don't like Kyle Shanahan's explanation of why he decided to receive the kick in overtime, um, and then. Definitely, definitely don't like some of the play calls that he did, like not running, only running McCaffrey one time in the third quarter. I just wasn't a fan of that. Um, but again, shout out to uh, the Kansas City defense. You know, uh, Kansas City, everyone always thinks about Mahomes and Kelsey when you talk about Kansas City. Kansas City didn't even give up 300 points um, in the regular season. And, you know, they play 17 games. So uh, their defense for me, Julius, was the most important part of this Super Bowl run. Um, when you look at them, holding the 49ers to 22 points in overtime, holding the Ravens to 10 points, um, you know, holding the, the Bills to under 20. It's, it's just It was just an impressive run for this defense, and I feel like they don't get talked about enough. Uh, yeah, that last point about the defense, uh, big point. And this game, uh, as you alluded to, just, just so many turning points, so many critical plays in this game, uh, so many game-altering plays all in one. Just a great game, a game with a lot of drama, a lot of suspense. I just want to get that out the way. Uh, hopping into it, uh, you mentioned the game starts with the 49ers right, marching right down the field, and then Christian McCaffrey loses a fumble. Just as a bad time to do it. Now, on that drive, before he lost the fumble, he touched the ball four times on the first five plays of the game and picked up 30 yards. So he was effective 
as a runner and receiver before the fumbles to start the game. Uh, I'm CCing Todd Munkin on that one more time. <laughs> Using your running backs against Kansas City's defense, it can work for you. Keep that in mind next year. So we have a game where all the focus is on the quarterbacks because there's way too much focus all the time on quarterbacks. And with all the focus on Mahomes and Purdy, Kelsey and McCaffrey and all of these superstar offensive players, we have a score this first quarter, <laughs> ironically enough. And Kansas City in particular in the first quarter, they had seven plays in the first quarter for 16 yards and one first down. And that first down was a 10-yard run by Pacheco. That's all you got in the first quarter for Kansas City. So in a game that you ultimately won, that's how you're starting off on offense. That speaks to what Kansas City's defense was doing. So we get to early in the second quarter. Jake Moody hits the 55-yard field goal. That breaks the ice. And congratulations to Jake Moody. You had the Super Bowl record for the longest field goal. Didn't last long, but you had it. Nobody can take that from you. Well, somebody did take it from you. But anyway. So the Chiefs looked like they were going to immediately get that back. They hit a deep pass to McCall Hartman Jr., a great throw in the double coverage by Mahomes, right on the money. Uh, you don't expect that. Going back the last two seasons, Hartman has only hit 50 yards, 50 receiving yards in the game four times. So that's for a whole game, hitting 50 yards receiving. So we don't expect him to make a 50-yard catch at any point. So that was a nice wrinkle from Kansas City. It looks like the Chiefs are getting the momentum back. They're about to score in the red zone. Next play, Isaiah Pacheco loses the fumble. Uh, nice strip by Deamador Lenore. And after that, we had the incident with Travis Kelsey on the sideline bumping and berating Andy Reid. Now, people brush it off as nothing, but I, I have a little bit of a problem with that just because who's involved is the only reason why it's being brushed off. Could you imagine if that was Antonio Brown, Terrell Owens, Des Bryant, or getting into current players, Stephon Diggs, A.J. Brown. I mean, that, that would be all that would be talked about. Even more than Mahomes' legacy today would be, oh, look at this, 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 this guy being a diva again. But with Kelsey, who's had a few of these incidents this year, yeah, it just gets brushed under the rug. None of those guys won Super Bowls. <laughs> <laughs> Well, none of those guys were in this situation either. <laughs> that's why you got guys begging. Please sign me, Chiefs. <laughs> so shortly after that is when the Drake Greenlaw injury happened. And, you know, I, I didn't really have a side in this game, so to speak, but I was just sick for Drake Greenlaw. Uh, again, going back to when it happened to J.K. Dobbins at the very beginning of the season, I've told you that I'm just – Ever since I tore my Achilles, I'm just more sensitive to it. And when Greenlaw did it, I knew right away because that's exactly what it looked like when I did it. And, you know, for it to happen at any point is terrible enough. For it to happen in the Super Bowl, and you saw it in the first quarter, the first possession uh, defensively for the 49ers, just how ready, how hyped Greenlaw was on the field. This, this guy took the role of emotional leader of that defense to start this game, and he was everywhere to start the game. So uh, for, the, for that to happen in the Super Bowl, like Patrick said, on a, you know, not even during a play, uh, in between possessions, that's just, I just can't imagine how he has to feel now after that. And keep in mind, while he was in the game, in Kansas City, they got the one... Deep pass to Hardman. Other than that, the offense did nothing. 
uh, against the 49ers defense with Greenlaw in there. So it just, again, just sick for Greenlaw. So four and a half minutes left in the second quarter. That's when the 49ers take the 10-0 lead. Jawan Jennings with a touchdown pass to Christian McCaffrey, a pass that was across the field, took forever. <laughs> a slow, slow developing play. Looked like it probably should have been intercepted. Uh, Nick Bolton kind of overran the play. And the rest of the defense for Kansas City just looked like they were just slow to pursue it for whatever reason. Uh, maybe they just overreacted to Jennings catching uh, the lateral to start that playoff. But uh, anyway, Christian McCaffrey scores the first touchdown of the game to the shock of nobody. And the 49ers hold a 10-0 lead. Kansas City almost went the entire first half without scoring. They were able to salvage a field goal right at the end of the first half, but that's all they got. So the 49ers win the half with a 10-3 lead. Uh, credit to the 49ers defensive line. Chase Young, a big first half, a sack. Uh, he also forced an intentional grounding. That doesn't show up in his stats, but it's effectively a, stat, a sack because it's a loss of down and a spot foul. So essentially two sacks for Chase Young, who everybody was so ready to dismiss. But uh, Young with a big impact. Uh, Eric Armstead had a sack on the last Chiefs offensive play of the first half. Just the entire defensive line came through. And, yeah, Travis Kelsey, like you said, Patrick, he went into the half. So even after the Greenlaw injury, Kelsey went into the half with that one catch for one yard in the first half. Now, here's where uh, one of the, again, game-altering things happened. So you had KC come out with the ball first in the second half. They immediately, Mahomes immediately throws the interception. Jair Brown playing the most important position of football, playmaking safety, a minute and a half into the third quarter, gives his team an opportunity to stretch that lead out. And when you are going against one of those guys, a Brady, a Manning, I'll even throw Rodgers in there. I know, I know we hadn't done it in the postseason that often, but whatever. Mahomes, you got you to gotta stomp these guys while they're down. So you've got the ball now, 10-3. You just got a turnover. From the most important position, you are in Kansas City's territory to start the drive. You got to come away with points. And the 49ers went three and out. They did not score after Brown got that interception. To me, that's one of the plays I look at and say, you lost the game there. You got to score, even if it's a field goal. With the way Jake Moody was kicking, at least on field goals, you had to get in position to get at least three. One first down would have got you in Moody range. But they didn't do it. Huge missed opportunity. Chiefs eventually get in the field goal range, at least Butker range, and he is a 57-yarder. So now, congratulations to him. He's your record holder for longest field goal in the Super Bowl. Now you have a 10-6 game. By the way, that was Butker's ninth straight make from 50 yards and beyond. So, you know, we know Justin Tucker's the GOAT, but Harrison Butker, uh, if we're looking for that number two kicker in the league, he's, he's right up there with anybody with the way he's been kicking the ball. With that score 10-6, to me, the biggest play of the game was the punt. You can, you can argue a few different plays. The biggest play of the game to me was the punt. That was muffed. It hits the leg of Daryl Luter Jr., despite the fact that uh, Ray Ray McLeod was yelling to get out the way. But McLeod has to, has to fall on that football. Trying to scoop it after it bounced off your teammate's leg in traffic is not the move. That is not the time to try to be a hero. Neither of these punt returners were able to get anything going against their former teams. I mean, in the case of uh, in the case of James, uh, he, he was going against his former team, McLeod, no. 
But uh, neither of these punt returners got anything going. That wasn't the time to try to be a hero and make something happen. That's just time to fall on the ball, save the possession. You can't give the Chiefs that short of a field ever, no matter how much their offense is struggling. So you give up that turnover. The next play is the Valdez-Scantling wide open touchdown in the end zone. Now, why is Valdez-Scantling open? Watch the replay for yourself. Jair Brown, again, you're playing the most important position of football, playmaking safety. You have to make the right play. Jair Brown came up on Travis Kelsey. That was the wrong play. Kelsey was already covered. So now we have two men on Kelsey. Nobody, because the safety vacated his position, nobody follows Valdez-Scantling. He's wide open in the end zone. Again, that is why. Now, people won't see it, but that is why safety is the most important position in the game. Because when you're caught out of position, it's points immediately. There's nobody to cover up your mistake. You cover up everybody else's mistake on the field. Nobody can cover up yours. That's why it's the most important position. You saw it on that play. If you watched it, if you don't see what I'm talking about, just watch it for yourself. You will see. Jair Brown is number 27, if that helps you. So... After the safety failed and lost the lead for the 49ers for the first time in the game, now you got Kansas City in front. Keep this in mind with the Chiefs. Before that drive, which was a one-play 16-yard drive, they had gone 18, 18 straight possessions without a touchdown going back to the Ravens game in the AFC Championship. The longest drought of Mahomes' career without scoring a touchdown. And so despite that, the Chiefs have won these games. So again, when people say, oh, Mahomes will the team will win, no. No, Mahomes did his job, especially late in the game. But willing the team? No. Not, not when you go 18 straight possessions. You can't say willed the team the last couple of weeks. These are total team efforts we're seeing from the Chiefs. So what you're saying is he's a game manager? <laughs> I'm saying he had game managing moments for 18 possessions for sure. <laughs> So the 49ers, they managed to get the lead back. Uh, that's Jawan Jennings beating uh, uh, LeJarrius Sneed. Uh, you get, you see LeJarrius Sneed get beat from time to time because he's such an aggressive corner. You can beat him. But you don't see him get out physical very often. And that's what Jawan Jennings was able to do, just break through LeJarrius Sneed for that touchdown. And just an overall extremely impressive game uh, for Jawan Jennings, who you know doesn't have a major role in the offense, at least in the passing game. You know, he's one of those tough guys, blocker, kick, make the tough catches on third down. But uh, he he's shown in his role in this game. And on that drive, the 49ers had a chance to kick a field goal to tie the game. They decided to go for fourth and three in the red zone. And they uh, converted it with George Kittle. And I can, I can tell you at that moment, Dan Campbell probably slammed something on the ground. It's nice to have a guy who can catch on fourth down. It was close, though. It was a close play. It, it was very close. It was it was very close. As a matter of fact, Jim Nance, Jim Nance announced that it was short. It was Romo who had to say, hey, no, no, I think that was the first down. So it was very close. So you have a chance after that to go up four, and that's when the extra point gets blocked by Leo Chanel. Again, when we talk about players who helped win this game for the Chiefs, Leo Chanel blocked this extra point. Leo Chanel is also who forced the fumble on Christian McCaffrey on the first possession of the game. He had a game. In a game that went to overtime. In a game that went to overtime, Leo Chanel made two plays that undoubtedly took points off the board. So when you want to talk about players who helped Kansas City win this game, 
Shalom has a case as much as anybody. He affected the scoreboard in this game twice. After that, the teams exchange field goals back and forth. Jake Moody hits a 53-yarder with under two minutes left. 49 is up three. You think you got something, but again, this is when you do get fearful of Mahomes and Kelsey in that offense. Uh, Mahomes completes a 22-yard pass to Kelsey. Nice catch and run by Kelsey. And Kelsey, I haven't seen him run that fast all season uh, to set up this short field goal. Uh, Kansas City would have loved to, another chance to go for a touchdown, but they just couldn't chance it uh, with the clock running out. So they had to settle for a short field goal and go into overtime. And again, Travis Kelsey, eight receptions for 92 yards after halftime. Again, the Greenlaw injury was a factor. Uh, Oren Burks could not handle Travis Kelsey at all when that matchup Every time that matchup happened, it seemed like Kansas City took advantage. Again, that's what the greats do, so I give them credit there. So now we get to overtime. San Francisco wins the toss. They elect to receive. Now, my thing is this. I'm okay under the new rules with taking the ball first. You're that confident in your offense? I'm all for it. Now, here's the deal. Now, let's talk about the fact that San Francisco should have gone three and out. But uh, they got a holding call against Trent McDuffie. It was a, you know, away from the play, but it was an accurate call. That kept the drive alive. 49ers from there marched down the field, get inside the 10, and settle for a field goal. Here's my thing. If you're going to take the ball first against that guy, against that offense, against Mahomes, against Reed, against Kelsey, against that team, you're going to take the ball first, you have to go for the touchdown. That's where I disagree with Kyle Shanahan 100%. You can't settle for the field goal there. Now, again, credit the Chiefs defense for coming through with that stop. Credit to Chris Jones for coming through with that big-time pressure that forced Brock Purdy to throw the ball away on a play where Brandon Ayuk was wide open in the end zone. By the way, Chris Jones had two pressures in this game that forced Mark Brock Purdy to miss easy touchdown passes. Again, doesn't show up in the stats, but if you watch the game, you see the impact Chris Jones had. But yeah, fourth and four in overtime, inside the 10, you have got to try to score that touchdown. You can't think or hope that you're going to hold the Chiefs to just the field goal, especially when their offense has gained some momentum in the fourth quarter. And your defense is getting worn down. It's going to have a hard time coming up with the stop. You've got to go for the touchdown. They don't. They settle for the field goal. So now Kansas City knows. Field goal ties it. Touchdown wins it. Patrick Mahomes has a couple of runs on the drive to win the game. One on a third and one. One on a fourth and one. It's okay for a quarterback to use his legs. It's actually the smart thing to do. You just have to be smart with how you do it. Mahomes ran several times in this game. Never really took a big hit. That's the key. So I'm fine with how Mahomes ran in this game. He was he was Kansas City's best rushing option, really. So smart plays by him running the football. And then, of course, the game-winning touchdown pass looked eerily similar to uh, what won the Super Bowl last year. Same side of the field. The alignment was a little different. Harvin was in a little tighter uh, this year than you saw Tony basically on the same play last year. But... The Chiefs get it done yet again. Super Bowl champions back-to-back. -back. Patrick Mahomes 
your Super Bowl MVP. He has put himself, as far as his legacy goes, he has put himself just about up there with anybody. I know some people don't want to rush him ahead of Brady, but the, the fact that after six seasons as a starter, you're comparing him to Brady, you feel the need to even have to say that, that says a lot about where his legacy is. Mahomes has faced double-digit deficits in every Super Bowl he's appeared in, and yet he's a three-time Super Bowl champion, three-time Super Bowl MVP. So... For the most part, he plays his best football when he's behind in these big games. And it came through once again for the Chiefs. But again, when you're coming from behind, you need help from the defense. You need help from special teams. Doesn't matter if you score every time you touch the ball and the special teams, the defense, are not doing their jobs. So this was a complete team win uh, for the 49ers. Just, just a lot of things you, you wish you could take back. You wish you could take back the Greenlaw injury. You wish you could take back the muff punt. You, miss, you wish you could take back the blocked extra point. You know, all, all of these things where, again, neither quarterback had anything to do with it. So, again, when you say quarterback's the most important position, there were a lot of key plays in this game that didn't involve the quarterbacks at all. And uh, the 49ers just got the short end of the stick most of the time in those games, in those situations. Uh, Christian McCaffrey did Christian McCaffrey things. Uh, 160 yards from scrimmage in this game. He did lose that fumble. But other than that, a big game. Keep in mind, McCaffrey on the overtime drive had 52 yards. So if you want to talk about somebody willing to a team down the field, McCaffrey did that in overtime. Uh, just couldn't quite will them, as they like to say, into the end zone in overtime. But uh, otherwise, it's another monster game uh, for the guy who's been the best offensive player in the league this year. And just a quick shout-out to Chris Conley. You don't normally talk about a guy on special teams coverage having a revenge game, but Chris Conley was a monster in this game uh, with his punt coverage. And, you know, he been down to punt at the one-yard line. He had a couple of big hits immediately on the returner. So just, just a monster revenge game for Chris Conley. So I just want to give him a little shout-out because just never thought I'd have a chance to do that. But uh, great game, legacy game, so many things to, to look at in this game, so many things to analyze. Uh, one of the wildest Super Bowls I've seen, especially the way the second half went and overtime. Um, and just all you can do is just tip your, tip your cap to the Chiefs. Uh, picked against them too often in the postseason. Glad I didn't do it on the final game. No, just a couple things I want to follow up with, Julius. I agree with you about the Travis Kelsey bump on Andy Reid. I feel like if that was anybody else, it would have been made. I mean, I know they made a big deal about it Like as soon as they're like, what's going on over here? But it still wasn't as big of a deal as it would have been if it was T.O. when he played for Philly after he came back from a broken ankle after like six weeks and was being the best player on the field during that Philly run. Um, yeah, like you, like you said, if it was... Even, like you said, Stefan Diggs, uh, any any of the guys, you know, in the league now, I feel like, um, you know, Justin Jefferson, Chase, you know, Jamar Chase, any of those guys, I feel like they, I mean, even those those guys aren't really, like, villainized like that, like Stefan Diggs is, but I still feel like if it was anybody else in the league, um, they definitely would have probably been, you know, criticized and scrutinized more, but because it's Travis Kelsey and um, him and Andy Reid are both trying to, you know, sweep it under the rug and because he had a big second half like he had a big you know impact after he did it I feel like they kind of are letting it slide which I don't agree with but it is what it is right I mean this is we talk about it on this podcast almost every week and just some you know the privilege is real sometimes and, and this I think is a big example of that wraps up our 
recap and analysis of the Super Bowl. Again, great game. Again, uh, congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs uh, for starting up that dynasty conversation. And I'm sure that will be talked about for the next several months. Getting into the NFL awards. Keep in mind, they are all regular season awards. With that said, we'll talk with the big one first. The most valuable player award that, as expected, went to Lamar Jackson. Uh, just And this one was deserved. I know a lot of people are just looking at the passing yards, and I've told you time and time again, over the last couple of years now that passing yards are the most overrated stat in football, the second most overrated stat in sports, only behind pitcher wins in baseball. And so I don't care that other quarterbacks threw for more yards. I care about the impact. I care about who maximized what was around them. And when you look at the plays that Lamar Jackson made, they were just plays where if you're watching him, you say nobody else in the league is going to make that play. Escaping, getting away from rushers, being able to throw on the run. Uh, the running, honestly, the running was less explosive this year. I don't think Lamar Jackson is, is, has the speed he once had, but this was his best season as a passer. People get confused because he wasn't throwing the ball 50 times a game, but when you look at the efficiency, Lamar Jackson was really one of the best passers in the league. When you look at the efficiency, and again, when you look at who he's throwing the ball to, it's an improved receiver core, but still not good, not nearly as good as the other quarterbacks who are at the top of the league statistically. So I think this is a well-deserved award since you're making it a quarterback-only award. Uh, rounding out the top five, you had Dak Prescott in a distant second. Christian McCaffrey finished third. Again, McCaffrey would have been my choice for MVP because he did more to carry his offense, in my opinion, than any other player did. But again, Lamar Jackson, to me, was the most valuable quarterback by far this year in the regular season. Brock Purdy finished fourth, and Josh Allen finished fifth, even though somebody snuck a first-place vote in there for Josh Allen. So, that rounds up your top five. I think they got it right based on what the MVP is now. But just to say one more time, I would have voted for Christian McCaffrey. But if it's going to be an exclusive award for quarterbacks, then Lamar Jackson was the right choice. Yeah, um, you know, at the beginning of this uh, preseason predictions, I said, uh, you know, I thought if Mahomes had another season like he did last year, I think he would definitely win it. And I said about people who could, could, could contend, I had Lamar Jackson up there with the very first, the very first name I said. So to see him win MVP again, uh, that's that's a great you know bounce back season for him. Uh, in the Ravens, uh, I'm with you. I think people are making a big deal about him winning MVP when he clearly deserved it. Um, I also would have voted for Christian McCaffrey to get MVP. If I had a vote, uh, you know, it's kind of like Heisman is becoming a quarterback award. Uh, if that's going to be the case in all these sports, they just need to make a quarterback award, best quarterback in the league or something, because, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, that only a quarterback can win. I mean, I remember a time, Julius, where uh, kickers were winning MVP in the NFL, and that seems like that will never happen again. So, uh, no, no. Um, and it's true. You know, people there, there have been other positions that have won MVP in the NFL. I know some kids or people listening may not be old enough to remember those times, but there were times where other positions could actually win an award. So, um, yeah, I think it's just really sad that it has come become the best quarterback on the best team, essentially, award. Um, and so I just, I'm just i just not a fan of that. 
moving over, I guess we'll just stay with offense and go with offense player of the year. Um, that went to Christian McCaffrey, which, um, you know, I also said on the preseason prediction, uh, you know, I said I think it'll be between him or Tyreek Hill, and, and they both got MVP votes. So, um, you know, that, that's great. But uh, Christian McCaffrey, again, he would have had my vote for MVP, Julius. I think he was the best offensive player in the league, which, again, to me, uh, would be most valuable. Um, and I think he should have won most valuable player. So I'm glad he won an, an award, but, you know, I, I just – they should just change the MVP award up because if they're just going to give it to quarterbacks uh, only, it's just kind of ridiculous to any of the other guys in the NFL. I agree with all of that. So, again, Christian McCaffrey, your offensive player of the year, he won by a pretty wide margin over Tyreek Hill, who a lot of people kind of the gun on uh, as far as, you know, naming him the offensive player of the year halfway through the season. Uh, tremendous year by Tyreek Hill. Uh, no question about it, but I think people got a little – antsy with with trying to make him the offensive player of the year because of what he was on pace to do through like eight games the season is 17 games so gotta let these things play out uh just rounding out the top five Sedarian lamb finished third and then fourth and fifth were lamar jackson and dak prescott for me if you're going to make mvp a quarterback only award then to me quarterback should not be eligible for offensive player of the year votes so i don't even like the fact that uh, lamar jackson and dak prescott even got votes here because they were one and two in the MVP race. So I, I don't understand that. But again, Christian McCaffrey, when you look at what he did all season long as a rusher and a receiver, you can make the argument that if you take the receiving away, he's the best running back in football. To me, he's right up there. It's he and Nick Chubb as far as the best pure runners in the game right now. But when you factor in what this man does as a receiver, when you look at his receiving usage, is, and I know it's, it's a regular season award, but when you look at it throughout the playoffs, is how how wide of a margin he led the team by as far as being a receiver in the postseason. There's just no more critical piece to their team than Christian McCaffrey. And to me, as long as he's with this team and he stays healthy and he plays, can you keep in mind he missed the last basically game and a half. Um, if he plays anything close to a full season, he should be right up there with anybody uh, for Offensive Player of the Year in this situation. Moving over to Defensive Player of the Year, and this is where we get a bit controversial. Miles Garrett is your Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, just edging out T.J. Watt. Uh, rounding out that top five, Micah Parsons, who was my pick for Defensive Player of the Year this year. Finished third, Max Crosby. Let's go Raiders, finished fourth. And Deron Bland, who a lot of people wanted to win this award, finished in fifth. I have to admit, this pick made me a little bit sick just because I picked Miles Garrett to win Defensive Player of the Year last year. So a year too late to, to make me look good. But overall, uh, Miles Garrett had a big-time impactful season as a pass rusher on special teams at times. You saw him come through and make some big plays. Uh, just one of the more impressive athletes we have in the league. And when you look at how the Browns' defense performed this year, even while being beaten up at times, Miles Garrett was a big part of that. Again, you can make a very, very strong case that Mr. Trent Watt should have won this award. But uh, this is one of those where, for me, it could have gone either way. I'm okay with Miles Garrett winning it, understanding that you know voters aren't going to want to vote for the same guy every year. And Miles Garrett's just one of those guys who he's a dominant enough player where – 
you didn't want to look at the end of his career and say, oh, but he never won Defensive Player of the Year. So I think that plays a part. But uh, congratulations. This guy is easily in the discussion when you talk about best edge players in football. So, again, I'm not mad at it, even if it is a choice that you can question. Yeah, I had T.J. Watt picked um, at the beginning of the season, and I still think he should have won it, and that's not to take anything away from Miles Garrett. Had a hell of a season, but he actually had a better season last year than he did this year when when he won it. So, um, Also, I'm not a big fan of Julius whenever um, there is a controversy like this, and then uh, the committee or people come out and try to throw analytics in my face as to why he won um, the award. So, like... T.J. Watt led the league in sacks this year uh, with 19. Yeah, they had the same amount of forced fumbles uh, with four. Uh, Watt had three more, two more fumble recoveries. He had a he had a pick, which he drops back into coverage more than Garrett does, obviously. Um, and he just, I just thought he had a better overall season. And honestly, um, Pittsburgh's offense was way worse than Cleveland's offense. So for the, for the Steelers to even make um, you know, the, the postseason, um, and to make it, you know, so that division had all winners for the first time in a long time. I think that's just as impressive, but you know, they came out with these analytics that like, uh, miles Garrett was doubled on 30% of his snaps and that's 15% more than any other defender in the league. And I, and you know, that's, I get it. I mean, yeah, but you know, other people also face double teams and you have to still get things done, but um, shout out to Miles Garrett. Uh, I think he definitely deserved a defensive player of the year award. Don't know if it was this year. He definitely has had, uh, better seasons, but, um, he had a really good season and, you know, they keep saying the Browns defense was number one, eh, but they, they had, they had a good season and, um, you know, great for him winning that award. I'm going to stay on the defensive side of the ball, Julius, and I'm going to go to a rookie of the year on defense and, uh, we called this, we both called this at the beginning. We both said it was going to be Will Anderson Jr., and it was um, hell of a season for him. And what it was a surprising Houston Texans team um, this year. But, you know, Will Anderson Jr. broke uh, the record for most sacks uh, for a rookie for um, the Texans franchise. So, you know, that's that's great for him. To, for him. Um, he only started 13 games. He had some injuries, uh, but, you know, Still, he had, um, you know, 45 tackles, seven sacks, uh, 22 quarterback hits, 10 tackles for losses. So, uh, really, really good season for a rookie uh, edge rusher, uh, for sure. And, you know, I'm happy that uh, those two picks that they made that people kind of question, like, why would you trade back up into the first round to, to make back-to-back picks, uh, really seem to be uh, playing well for them, Julius, and definitely making a huge difference down there in Houston. Uh, yes, indeed. So for this one, you know, Will Anderson Jr. just barely edged out Jalen Carter. Uh, those are the two guys that we were focused on uh, going back to last year's draft. So no surprise at all to see them go one, two. I thought Jalen Carter could have won this award. Uh, this is another one that could have easily. I'm, I'm fine with Will Anderson Jr. I would have been fine with Jalen Carter. It was that close between these two in my eyes uh, with Anderson. When you talk about the Texans turning it around. Uh, it's not just one guy. When you when you turn it around, it's not just one guy turning it around. Uh, Will Anderson Jr. played a big role. Uh, had he stayed healthy the entire season, could have put up even bigger numbers. 
But um, again, just just happy to see this. This is a guy, the kind of guy you want uh, being a leader on your defense. The guy's going to give it all. A guy who can be an emotional leader on the field. And uh, just congratulations to him on getting that done. Uh, Kobe Turner finished third, and good for him because he was a guy who was kind of overlooked. Uh, we didn't talk about him very much. I started talking about Kobe Turner towards the end of the season, but he was one of the better interior pass rushers in the league, not just for a rookie. So Kobe Turner, when we talk about rookies from this class uh, to keep your eye on moving forward, Kobe Turner's the name you keep your eye on. And uh, Devin Witherspoon finished fourth. That's another guy who could have been in position to win the award had he been able to you know, stay healthy the entire season. But uh, Witherspoon certainly made his presence felt uh, quickly uh, once he got into the lineup. So just very good rookie class defensively as far as the guys who finished as finalists for this award. And um, again, Will Anderson won it in a year where there were a lot of worthy candidates. Moving over to the Offensive Rookie of the Year, and once again, it's a Houston Texan. Colridge Stroud, the fourth, winning uh, by a wide margin, really, Offensive Rookie of the Year. Uh, Puka Nakua finished in second. Sam Laporta, third. Jameer Gibbs, fourth. And Bijan Robinson, fifth. No thanks to Arthur Smith. Uh, for me, I said it for weeks now, and I'll say it one more time, Puka Nakua would have been my pick for Offensive Rookie of the Year just because taking Rookie out of the equation, Puka Nakua was one of the best receivers in football this year. And when you compare what Puka Nakua did to any other rookie wide receiver in the history of football, we have not seen it a year like this. So for me, Nakua would have gotten the vote. That said, Again, these awards are going to be quarterback awards, and people love a good story. I'm happy for Colbert Stroud the fourth. Uh, I'm putting to bed that stupid, ridiculous stigma attached to Ohio State quarterbacks. Hopefully, that never has to come up again. But uh, Stroud definitely proved idiots wrong who said he shouldn't have been drafted that high because of where he played college football. Uh, the man showed poise throughout the season. Uh, he helped improve this offense in a big-time way. And, again, the poise is just what struck me the most, even more so than the incredible passes he made throughout the season, just the fact that he seemed, his on-field demeanor just seemed like a guy who had been in the league for 10 years, and he was ready to accept the challenges uh, that he faced all the way up until he got to the Ravens in the second round of the postseason. But uh, the future is very bright on both sides of the ball for Houston, and Stroud is a big reason why. Um, I'm happy Laporta got votes. Again, he finished third. I said in the draft recap that we did that I thought Laporta would be the best receiving tight end in this class and that he was just held back by a pathetic Iowa passing offense. And you saw what he looks like when he has a competent uh, passing offense that he's a part of. So bright future for him. Uh, Jameer Gibbs, he lived up to and surpassed his lofty draft status. So I'm happy for him. He's just an explosive running back. He showed that right away, helped transform this Lions offense. And Detroit looks very smart with uh, both of those picks, Laporta and Gibbs. B. John Robinson, I'm sorry, he's too good to have finished fifth. And that is, again, that that's why Arthur Smith is fired. So hopefully moving forward, uh, there are some coaches in Atlanta who understand that you need to get the ball in that man's hands. I'm with you. I think Puka Nakua should have won this award, and my reasoning behind it is uh, everything you said obviously was great. 
Um, but I also think that for these awards, especially Rookie of the Years, I feel like where they're drafted should also play a part in it. So you take C.J. Stroud second overall. Um, you expect, like, you're doing that because you think he's a franchise quarterback, right? So the expectations are higher for him than Puka going in the seventh round or wherever he got drafted. Um, and you just have a different expectation, kind of like, Brock Purdy being Mr. Irrelevant, and that's why people are like, look what he's doing with the 49ers, and, and that's why you have the whole game manager versus game changer debate happening, right? But you don't have high expectations for that person, and then when they exceed them, everyone's like, whoa. So I feel like because what Puka did was historical, and he got passed over by every team six for six rounds, um, you know, I just feel like... I feel like... Um, that should be taken into consideration for Rookie of the Year uh, awards, Julius, in my opinion, because, again, it's it's something that no team and no GM thought they would have this big of an impact because if they thought he would be this good, he would have gone in round one. Let's just be honest. We've seen wide receivers go often and early in the draft. Um, so I, I think that's just a shout-out to Puka, too, and his, and his work ethic and putting in the work and, and becoming – we all know this about Matthew Stafford, Julius. If you become a favorite target of Stafford's, uh, he will get you the ball. He will get you the ball. So, um, again, I think for Rookie of the Year, that needs to be kind of taken into consideration as well, in my opinion. It never will, but that's just what I would like to see. <clears throat> Going to Coach of the Year. Um, it went to Kevin Stefanski. It was a tiebreaker between him and D'Amico Ryans, and the only reason Stefanski got it is because he had one more first-place vote uh, than D'Amico Ryans. I think because the Houston Texans beat them in the first round of the playoffs, Julius, that should have been the tiebreaker, and D'Amico Ryan should have gone home with Coach of the Year. Um, no, but in all honesty, I think it should have been D'Amico Ryans. Um, again, I understand that Stefanski had to deal with all these quarterback injuries and bringing in new guys and the Ch- and Chubb going down, um, losing their kicker. I, they had a lot of they had a lot of uh, injuries in Cleveland for sure. Um, but where they were projected to finish versus what everyone thought the Houston Texans would be, I just don't think you can give D'Amico Ryan's enough credit for turning that franchise around. Um, you know, in in, a, in one season. I, I think uh, people had the Jags finishing really high because of their love for uh, Trevor Lawrence. Um, you know, I, I just don't think anyone saw the Texans winning their division uh, and, and, and hosting a playoff game, and let alone win. I know it's a regular season award, but still, just hosting a playoff game, regardless of what the outcome was, even though they did win that game. Uh, I just don't think you can say, especially with what that franchise was going through for the last few years with Sean Watson and hiring and firing coaches every year. I just, I don't think enough can be said about D'Amico Ryans, and I think he should have won this award. Um, So, you know, I understand the reasoning with Stefanski and the injuries and things like that, but um, I don't know, man. I feel like D'Amico Ryans was robbed on this one personally. This one, uh, to me, was as close as it could get. And I've stated it before, and I'll state it one more time for the record, that I did have Kevin Stefanski as my personal coach of the year, so I did agree with this choice. 
But the fact that, like you said, Patrick, it came down to a tiebreaker, it came down to one first place vote, I think that's right. Because, I mean, I, I would almost want to see Stefanski and Ryans have co-coaches uh, co, uh, of the year just because how close it was between these two. Um, so for me, what gave Stefanski a slight edge for me, you know, everybody's going to focus on the quarterbacks. And that, that's why Stefanski won the award, let's face it, because people don't look beyond the quarterback position. So because... Uh, the Browns started four quarterbacks, legitimately started four quarterbacks, not counting the fifth one. Um, they're going to give him the award because of that. What I look at is, even when this team was expected to be fully healthy, you wanted to, the offense to revolve around Nick Chubb. You lose your franchise offensive play in Nick Chubb. And you keep finding a way. You lose your starting left tackle. And you keep finding a way. You lose your starting right tackle. So you lose Jedrick Wills Jr. You lose Jack Conklin. And you keep finding ways to win games. One injury after the next to one important position after the next. Denzel Ward, your star corner, missed time this year. You missed you had your safeties, both of them, at different points in the season. Grant Delpit missed a lot of games with a groin issue at the most important position. You still found a way to win games. And so for me, with all the injuries the Browns went through, combined with the fact that you talked about, you brought up the divisions, Patrick, again, this is the division that every team finished with a winning record. And even at full strength, most people projected the Browns to finish last in this division, at best third. So for this team to be a playoff team, when the expectation was not to make the playoffs, even at full strength, and you weren't close to full strength, that's what did it for me with Kevin Stefanski. Now, again, you look at what Houston did this year. I was bolder than most just by saying the Texans would finish second in the division. They end up winning the division. They came through with the division on the line uh, to take the AFC South. Both the offense and defense took major steps forward. So, again, there's a strong case for D'Amico Ryans. I mean, the Texans were picking at two last year for a reason. And to find themselves in the playoffs a year later, I mean, that's a, an impressive accomplishment so again to me this was 1a and 1b couldn't go wrong either way you make me pick one and i'd pick the love Ryan's though so either one i would have been fine with and just to round it out dan campbell finished third you know no controversial going for every fourth down but uh, again the lions you know just just for getting past the stigma of being the lions and making it to into the playoffs winning the division doing all of that think Campbell deserves some votes here. Uh, Kyle Shanahan finished fourth. John Harbaugh finished fifth. Again, when you have the best rosters, you're not going to get a lot of credit as a coach. So uh, that's as much as they're as much love as they're going to get. But certainly they both deserve credit, Shanahan and Harbaugh, for what they did in the regular season as well. Getting to the assistant coach of the year, we've got Jim Schwartz as the Browns won a lot of awards. So the defensive coordinator for the Cleveland Browns. And again, this is a high-performing defense at home. <laughs> I do have to keep throwing that asterisk in because I feel like this defense was a little overrated because they, they weren't that great on the road when they went against decent teams on the road. But again, considering the injuries and in the just from one week to the next, the lack of continuity with the personnel you had to work with, Jim Schwartz certainly deserved some votes. I personally would have voted for Michael McDonald, who finished second. 
I just think that, again, for me, I looked at the Ravens roster before the season started. I thought they were weak at edge rusher. I thought they were weak at corner. I was concerned about their depth at linebacker, but that never really came to play because their linebacker stayed healthy. But for you to get basically a career year out of Justin BK, you see the turn of this huge step forward that Kyle Hamilton took to really become a superstar at the most important position in football, playmaking safety. You see the step forward Patrick Queen took. Uh, you see a step forward from Brandon Stevens. I mean, you can just go up and down the list of guys who had big-time seasons. Uh, you got guys off the scrap heap like Jadeveon Clowney and Kyle Van Noy to be edge rushers, and they had impactful seasons uh, for you. So all of a sudden, that was one of my big concerns. I didn't think they would be able to generate pressure off the edge. They did that at a great rate. Uh, this defense basically finished first in every meaningful statistic. So when you put all that into play, I thought Michael McDonald should have won the award, but Jim Schwartz got it. Uh, just around at the top five, Ben Johnson, another guy that's gotten a lot of love with the Lions. He finished in third, offensive coordinator. Bobby Slowick, who's been getting some love. Again, more Texans love here. Uh, he got some credit for, again, C.J. Stroud, the year he had, and Todd Munkin of the Ravens. So both coordinators for the Ravens finishing in the top five here. Again, Jim Schwartz won it, not taking anything away from him. I just thought Michael McDonald should have been your winner here. <clears throat> I agree with you. Um, you know, everyone thought the Ravens was going to take a step back, and they took a step forward uh, this year. So, uh, but shout out to Jim Schwartz for uh, getting the assistant coach of the year, and for the Browns to round out their uh, awards hall from from uh, the NFL Honors uh, Comeback Player of the Year. Um, shockingly, did not go to Demar Hamlin. I, I thought he had that in the bag, Julius. I thought he was going to win it no matter what. Uh, but it goes to Joe Flacco, which I know you are disgusted with, so I'll let you talk about that more in depth. Um, you know, I, I'm i not mad at it. Uh, I, he wasn't even playing NFL, um, you know, football. No one thought he would be playing this year. Uh, I get that. I feel like there should be a games played uh, thing like the NBA has. Um, uh, that That's my one... Um, that's my one kind of gripe with it. But, um, you know, it was between him, Tua, Baker, Stafford, and DeMar Hamlin. Uh, you know, if you really want the essence of comeback player of the year, I don't know why so many people are um, upset about this, but DeMar Hamlin, like, literally died and was brought back to life. So if anyone actually came back to play the game of football, it was him. I know he didn't do much on the field this year. Um but I don't know why people are so mad about why he was nominated. Like, I, I just, I feel like it was a big deal when it happened. Everyone was like, oh, my God, look how dangerous football is. And we hope he's all right. And then he is all right. And he's trying to get back to playing the game he loves and that he gets paid to play. And everyone's mad about it. So I just don't understand the rationale behind why people are so mad about it. Um, but, you know, I don't. You know, I'm not a big fan of the name of it because I feel like Comeback Player of the Year should have to be someone who actually, like, is coming back from an injury. or Like, Baker Mayfield, Baker Mayfield is just coming back from being benched. Like, how is he even up here for Comeback Player of the Year? Like, you just weren't good and you got benched. And then you got signed by a new team and you started every game. Like, I feel like you're not really coming back. You're not coming back to the league or you're not coming back from something besides just not being good enough to start in the league last year. So, you know, I kind of have a weird thing around these um, awards in all the sports. Yeah, I just I just think that 
for me, I feel like you should have to actually, like, Stafford had his elbow injury and all that stuff last year. That makes sense to me, you know. Tua, Tua got hurt with the concussions and all that stuff. Like, So I understand why he's up there. And then, like I said, Flacco wasn't even playing football. But, um, you know, I understand Baker had a good year. But I just don't – for me, that's not really a comeback player of, of the year in my eyes. I know it is, but just for me, Julius, that's, I just – that's my one little thing with this award. When I look at how the voting went for comeback player of the year, at this point, I'm ready to get rid of the award. If, if, if you're going to have an award that's this much of a joke, then let's just stop having it. Joe Flacco was not on an NFL roster in November. <laughs> in November. Not on an NFL roster, sitting on his couch. To say a guy's the comeback player of the year because he played five games and got to throw the ball a lot. Five games in which everybody wanted to overlook those eight interceptions, which I sat here and told you in our playoff predictions that was going to come back to haunt them because you can't throw two interceptions a game and think you're going to win against quality teams. So it's not even like Joe Flacco really came back and played well. He just came back and threw the ball a lot for five games, for five little games. If you're going to let a player win an award off of five games, then get rid of the award. That's just stupid. DeMar Hamlin finishes in second. He actually finished close, and DeMar Hamlin actually had more first-place votes than Joe Flacco. But again, to me, this is a mockery. I'm sorry. And I may come off as a little insensitive here. I don't care. Yes, we all know what happened with DeMar Hamlin last year. Yes, we were all fearful when this man was motionless on the field. Did he really come back? Yes, he came back to life. But did he really come back as a football player? A man who was a healthy scratch way more often than not this year? A man who the biggest play he was involved in was an idiotic fake punt deep in his own territory where he didn't come close to getting the first down? That's who you want to vote for? Just because it's a feel-good story? No, no. Now, again, respectfully, if you want to take a new award, and you, you want to make it a new award and say, we're going to have like a courage award and we're going to name it the DeMar Hamlin Award for players who came back from more extreme circumstances. And you want to give that type of award to somebody like John Mechie coming back from cancer. You want to do that? That's fine. But if DeMar Hamlin is going to get votes just for showing up and being on the roster and being in a hoodie for half the season on the sidelines, then John Mechie should have been a finalist for this award. So... Joe Flacco made no sense. DeMar Hamlin made no sense. I'm sorry. And Baker Mayfield, for all the reasons Patrick said, what did you come back for? from? When you, you came back from recouping some status and some value in the league. That, that, that's it. You came back from a year where you got benched in Carolina, got signed for a few games with the Rams, looked okay in one of those games. That, that's what you came back from. You didn't come back from any type of injury. You just came back from a not good stretch of your career. No. So, as far as I'm concerned, Matthew Stafford should have won this award. Because when I look at this list, again, the top three players, again, number one, played five games, should have been ineligible. Number two, didn't play anything, any more than that. Played way fewer snaps than Flacco, so he shouldn't be on the list. And number three, didn't come back from anything, for real. Stafford is the one who had concussion and spinal injuries last year. 
and play very well this year to get a Rams team or to help lead a Rams team back to the postseason where we just weren't sure what the Rams were going to be this year. I called the Rams at the beginning of the season the biggest wild card in the league. And they ended up on the high end of that wild card in large part because Stafford came back and played a level of football I didn't think he physically would be able to get back to this year. So there, there's the guy that should have won. And oh, by the way, Tua Tagovailoa, who, I mean, get it, it, it we, we remember him shaking and, and, and everything and, and going into pulsating and all that stuff on the field. We remember all that. So, again, if you want to make this a comeback player of the year, those two guys should have been at the top of the list. Stafford should have won it as far as I'm concerned. But, I mean, I just felt like this was just a complete mockery. And if we're just going to make this a popularity contest and what story is the better feel-good story, then let's just get rid of the award because we don't need this to be or, – or just say that the comeback player of the year – is sponsored by Disney or something, if you're going to make this award a fairy tale. And on that note, Julius, let's just round out this uh, NFL talk uh, with uh, the newest uh, members of the Hall of Fame. And for most people listening to this podcast, they're going to know all of these names. Um, we got Dwight Freeney going in, Devin Hester, which I'm pumped that he's actually getting in. Best return returner I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Andre Johnson, shout out to Andre Johnson, one of the most consistent wide receivers we've seen play. Uh, Julius Peppers. Um, just great pass rusher in his prime. And then Patrick Willis. Um, obviously, I like him. His name is Patrick. But uh, also on top of that, um, probably one of the greatest linebackers I've ever seen play. Um, his consistency until injuries caught up to him, uh, just being an all-pro pretty much every year of his career, um, even as a rookie, I think just speaks to – the class of linebacker that he was. If you watch this man play the game, um, just insane how good he was and how fluid he was to the ball. And, um, you know, it, it's a shame that he never won defensive player of the year in his career, in his career. But again, to be all pro one as a rookie, uh, win rookie of the defensive rookie of the year, be the seventh and most defensive player of the year and go to the pro bowl all in your rookie season, uh, is just, insane uh, and like i said he went to the pro bowl every year of his career besides his injury shortened uh last season unfortunately um but this dude was just a, f- a freak of nature uh coming out of Ole miss just fluid and could just you know cover play the run it, it, was, it was just a, a beast to watch so congratulations to the class um you know i remember watching every single one of these guys play in, in their primes and getting drafted and all that good stuff so that means we're getting old, Julius, but also it means that yep. um, it's, it's going to be fun to watch a lot of these guys uh, get their gold jackets and, and, and see who what they talk about, all that good stuff. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited uh, to see these guys as a Hall of Fame speeches for sure. Definitely an interesting Hall of Fame class. And, and yeah, these Hall of Fame classes, if, you, if you're around our age, it uh, starts to make you feel older because you remember when all these guys first got into the league. Uh, so Dwight Freeney, I, mean, I feel like Dwight Freeney is a guy that was ahead of his time. Uh, he was a undersized, fast, quick edge rusher. Of course, everybody remembers the spin moves that he made so famous. But uh, he, he was doing that at a time where you, you normally didn't see these smallish uh, defensive ends. You saw the Colts deploy that with, with he and, and Mathis. But around the league, that didn't take Form. Now, now you're seeing these smaller guys. Now you're seeing like a Hassan Reddick, a Micah Parsons, guys who are off-ball linebackers in college uh, because of their speed, 
uh, they're they're able to be effective edge rushers. And Dwight Freeney, I just think in this era, would be even more dangerous than he was when he actually played. Uh, Devin Hester, again, I, I think if there's one guy who people look at, it might, it might be the most popular guy in this class, I would say it's Hester, just because there was uncertainty about whether or not a special teamer, a kick returner could get there. Uh, my memory of Devin Hester, it goes back to 2004. He was at Miami. I was at NC State. I got to watch this man when, when you knew better. You knew not to kick to Devin Hester when he was at Miami. Opening kickoff, we kick it to him. He runs it back for 105 yards. And it's just, it's just different when you see it in person and you see how fast 105 yards flies by when the ball's in his hands. So that's a college moment. But the fact that he carried that into the NFL and, I mean, he made kickoffs. He made kickoffs fun. A player like him is why I hate that they moved the kickoff up. We need more returns. We need to see more Devin Hester's, or, or maybe not Devin Hester's, but something close to it. Uh, give these guys a chance to return the ball, man. I mean, he uh, took I, the opening kickoff yeah. in the Super Bowl back for a touchdown and made that game with Rex Grossman versus Peyton Manning interesting. Yep. So, like, yep. you can't speak – his speed and just his playmaking ability was un, unheard of. Yeah, and, and that, that Super Bowl return, was that was in bad weather conditions. <laughs> so when he was theoretically slowed down, they still couldn't catch him. So absolutely, uh, happy to see Devin Hester in there. Andre Johnson, uh, you, you said it, just, just a consistent, steady receiver. Didn't matter that he never played with an elite quarterback. Uh, just he's kept his head down. You know, with, with all the people talking about how much these wide receivers are divas, you never saw this man complain or throw anybody under the bus or anything like that and of course everybody remembers the incident with Cortland Finnegan so I think that got up some points as well as far as his popularity but Andre Johnson very deserving uh Julius Peppers it is ironic that there is a Julius and a Patrick in this Hall of Fame class I, I don't love that he's a Tar Heel I, I gotta acknowledge that but uh definitely one of the best and most athletic edge rushers we've seen and even later in his career it was in Chicago and not quite the, the athlete he once was he still found a way to be an effective player uh, he was also able to get his hands on a lot of passes intercept a lot of passes for a defensive end so uh, again just an all-around great player and a guy who was remembered widely for being the one guy who could kind of compete with Michael Vick on Madden 2004 so a little bonus for him there uh, you talked about Patrick Willis. I mean, the guy is just one of the most complete, thorough players. Forget position, just one of the most thorough players you'll ever see. No weakness in his game when he was healthy. Um, you talk about being in the era uh, with a guy like Ray Lewis or coming a little later uh, than Ray Lewis. This guy was like the next best thing. We talk about the elite linebackers. You immediately think of Ray Lewis and Brian Urlacher in that era. And, and then Patrick Willis is, is right there with, with the best of them. Uh, again, like you said, shame he couldn't play longer, but uh, the man had no holes in his game, and you had to know where he was, and he was all over the place. So that was a challenge. Uh, we had a couple of senior picks as well. Randy Gratishar gets in. I'll acknowledge, don't know much about him. Linebacker for the Broncos. He won Defensive Player of the Year in 1978. So congrats to him. And uh, Steve Mongo McMichael. A uh, member of the Super Bowl Shuffle Bears Championship team, a five-time All-Pro. But if you're like me, if you're around my age, you remember him as a professional wrestler as, as, as much as you remember him as a football player, and you remember him spearing guys in the ring. So 
certainly a guy who belongs in the Entertainment Hall of Fame as well as the NFL Hall of Fame. All right, Joyce, let's go uh, to the NBA real quick um, and just talk about the very uneventful trade deadline. Uh, I know deals were made, but we, after a few years in a row of getting some big splash deals, uh, as you called it, only little uh, puddles in, in this one. But, um, <laughs> you know, this was before the trade deadline, but the Heat got Terry Rozier for uh, Kyle Lowry. Uh, Lowry's going to get bought out, um, you know, Everyone's hyping up the Phoenix Suns getting Royce O'Neal. I don't, I don't care about another you know swing player for for the Suns. Um, but I do think it's interesting uh, that the that the Hornets. We talked about them being players at the trade deadline uh, before the trade deadline happened in our last podcast, and they sent lots of people, lots of places. Um, I really like Gordon Hayward going to the to the Thunder. Um, I think that's a I think that's a really big move for the Thunder to get another guy uh, with veteran experience um, in the NBA. I feel like that's a lot more worth your while than than in the NFL. Uh, I think you know, especially since the Thunder are a lot of young guys, and Chet is essentially playing his rookie season now, and that's how it works in the NBA, which is dumb. But he didn't play last year, so this is rookie season. Um, I like that move for the, th- the Thunder. Uh, Buddy Heald finally gets traded after it's like 18 years of talking about him being traded on trade deadline day, but to the 76ers, Julius, <laughs> not anywhere else, which that's a good fit for that team. They, they needed another, uh, you know, three-point shooter uh, on that team. Uh, and I think he, and when Embiid gets back, if he gets back, hopefully he gets back, um, I think that would be a great fit for that team. Uh, but the winners for me, and I told everyone on our last podcast to watch out for Grant Williams getting traded from the Mavericks. Like that, that experiment did not work out, uh, and he and he's gone. And they brought in uh, PJ Washington and Daniel Gafford, which I I like both of those moves. And their first game in Dallas, they both showed they can play in Dallas and are making more of an impact than Grant Williams has all year. Um, I, I like the Maver- I think the Mavericks and the Knicks won this trade deadline, Julius. Um, I'll let you talk more about the Knicks trades. Um, well, it was one trade, but uh, they added they added Bogdanovich uh, to the to the mix, which I was happy about because I don't know why he was so pissed. And you said that last podcast, um, but um, yeah, man, I really like what Dallas did in this trade line. Do I think it makes them serious contenders? No, but does it make them a much better team? Yes. So anything can happen in the playoffs. We've seen it in the NBA. We've seen. The Bucks go down to the Heat last year because Giannis hurts his back on the first game of the series. So we've seen Philly take a lead and then Embiid not show up, and then Boston comes back and wins. So things happen in the NBA playoffs, Julius. Um, so the Mavericks, I don't think they that makes them like serious contender, but I definitely think it makes their team much better. And then the Knicks, like I said, I, I don't think the Knicks moves also make them a contender. Um, in the East, but it definitely makes them a much better team, and I really like what both those teams did at the trade deadline. As for the Raptors, don't know what they're doing. Still don't understand what they're trying to do in Toronto. They're just making moves to make moves. Um, so that's all I'm going to say <laughs> about about the Raptors. Yeah, the trade deadline actually started as anticlimactically as they could, the trade deadline actually started with Miles Bridges announcing that he wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> so one of the names that we thought might have been on the move as we do, knew or felt that the Hornets would sell off, Miles um, Bridges, and you know people are wondering how, how that happened, how he even has a full no-trade clause. 
Uh, that's because he signed a one-year qualifying offer in the offseason. And no matter what circumstances lead to a one-year qualifying offer, when you have that contract, you have a full no-trade clause. So that's how the day started. Uh, he talked about Gordon Hayward. He goes to Oklahoma City in exchange for Trey Mann, Vasile Micic, Davis Bertans, and whatever draft compensation means here. Uh, Vasile Micic, actually 18 points, 9 assists in his Hornets debut uh, with LaMelo Ball out. So he's an interesting player. He's a European player. Uh, he's a rookie, essentially, as you know, we know the NBA loosely uses that word. But uh, Micic, I believe, is about 30 years old. <laughs> so he's, he's a guy that's got plenty of experience overseas. And he, at least one game into this experiment, he looks like somebody who can be a decent insurance policy for the exciting but injury-prone LaMelo Ball. Uh, the Hornets, and, and as for um, Gordon Hayward, Oklahoma City, I agree with you. Uh, like the, the veteran presence being added to that young team, uh, Hayward's a guy that doesn't necessarily need to have the ball in his hands all the time. I think that's important with the players that the Thunder have in place. Uh, Hayward can be a floor spacer and, and things like that. And, and because of his injury proneness, and of course he's injured now, but um, you want Hayward in a position where he doesn't have to play a whole lot of minutes won't have to do that in Oklahoma City. I think he'll be good for 15, 20 minutes a night, and that's right where you want him. Uh, we talked about the Mavericks and the moves they made. They acquired P.J. Washington uh, for Grant Williams, Seth Curry, and a first-round pick in 2027. That's one thing I don't like about these NBA trades. I don't like trading picks three years in advance. But um, uh, Paul Washington Jr., he got 14 points off the bench. And his debut, he looks like he's going to fit in nicely. And then you can argue this is the biggest move of the deadline, that the Mavericks getting Daniel Gafford from the Wizards for Rashawn Holmes. And again, there's that draft compensation. I had specifically mentioned that I thought the Mavericks would try to upgrade at center. I had mentioned Clint Capella as a possibility, but the Hawks stayed pat, which I don't know why. I think they're a perfectly built team to be eighth place every year. I don't know where that gets you. But anyway, back to Gafford. You're talking about a guy who, before the trade, was second in the NBA in field goal percentage. So, again, he's a guy who finished at the rim. He's not going to be a great scorer, but he can finish at the rim. 19 points, 9 rebounds in his first game with Dallas. 16 points, 17 rebounds, and 5 blocks in a revenge game against the Wizards in his second game with the Mavericks. So, Gafford, a guy, especially while Derek Lively is out with a facial injury, uh, Gafford looks like he could have a big role on this team and uh, be the kind of player who meshes well with Luka Doncic because Gafford doesn't need the ball except for when he's right at the rim. Uh, Buddy Heald, you talked about him. He goes to the, the 76ers in, in exchange for Marcus Morris, senior, Furkan Korkmaz, and some second-round picks. Buddy Heald shot the ball 21 times <laughs> in his Sixers debut. Uh, leading the team in field goal attempts. Keep in mind, Tyrese Maxey didn't play in Hill's debut. But uh, Buddy Hill was fifth on the Pacers in field goal attempts. Keep in mind, they've got you know Halliburton, they've got Siakam, Miles Turner, Benedict Matherin. They've got some aggressive scores. So uh, Hill, it's, it's like he feels free. He, he can shoot the ball. And, and while Joel Embiid is out, get up as many shots as your heart desires, I guess. But um, again, like you said, if Embiid gets back and is okay, you have another floor spacer, which can only help and beat. So uh, that's a good move for the Sixers. Uh, you don't necessarily want Hill taking 21 shots. But uh, once Embiid comes back and that looks like it's going to be closer to maybe 10 or 12 shots a game, then you get a more effective Hill. Uh, the Knicks, 
Of course, I liked what they did last year when they got Josh Hart. I like the moves this year for Boyan Bogdanovich and Alec Burks. They give up Quentin Grimes, who a lot of people like, but Grimes just never carved out a role with New York. He may get a chance now in Detroit, but um, I think that's just best for both sides for Grimes to move on. Evan Fournier, that was a popular name at the trade deadline as far as just having a contract that was movable. Malachi Flynn, Ryan Archidiacono, those guys are pretty much non-factors. Julius Randle is out with the shoulder issue. OG Ananobi recently had a cleanup procedure with his elbow. So if you're the Knicks, you're missing both of your starting forwards. So this is a great time to get Bogdanovich and Burks. Uh, both of those players come to your team shooting over 40% from three-point range. So you're getting some floor spacers, and you're getting some guys who can catch and shoot. And again, when I talked about the Knicks trading R.J. Barrett away, they've got enough guys who, who want the ball in their hands. Now it's time to get some complimentary-type scores. Bogdanovich and Burks can fill that role for them. Uh, you mentioned the Raptors don't know what they're doing either. They pick up Kelly Olenek and Oshai Abaji from the Jazz in exchange for Kyra Lewis Jr., Otto Porter Jr., and a first-round pick in this year's draft, which sounds good, but that first-round pick is the lowest pick between the Clippers, Thunder, Rockets, and Jazz. So it's going to be a pretty low first-round pick. So, again, I'm not exactly sure what's happening in, in this trade. I don't know why the Raptors would give up a first-round pick, even if it is a low one. But it's just, it's just, it's just I, I don't know. I don't know either, Patrick, as far as what the Raptors are doing and what direction they're headed in. They've got a bunch of pieces. I will say this. Between getting Barrett and getting Olenek, maybe they just want some Canadian guys, you know, just to <laughs> try to appeal to uh, the fan base in the Great North. Uh, Brooklyn, they acquired Dennis Schroeder in exchange for Spencer Dinwiddie and Thaddeus Young. Uh, Brooklyn... Uh, gets a uh, uh, shooter. They they needed a point guard, I guess. So shooter, he he did have a double double in this debut with the Nets. So he looks like he could be a, a piece for this team uh, moving forward. Again, Toronto, not sure what they're doing here. They they waived Dinwiddie and Young. So I guess uh, the Raptors just really, really, really wanted to get rid of Dennis Schroeder. Uh, Dinwiddie signs with the Lakers. I chose the Lakers over the Mavericks, and just like. Uh, Kyle Kuzma chose the Wizards over the Mavericks. So the, you know, the guys who want the ball in their hands aren't going to play uh, with Luka Doncic because they're just not going to get the ball. And then even more so with Kyrie Irving there, now you're really not going to get the ball except for catch and shoot and lob situations. And Dinwiddie and, and Kuzma just aren't those kind of players. Uh, Dinwiddie with the Lakers, he won't get to touch the ball a whole lot, but still more than he would in Dallas. Uh, Thaddeus Young goes to the Suns. Um, he's a nice depth piece. I, I like him, but uh, he tends to have minimal roles wherever he goes. Uh, Phoenix, like you said, they got Royce O'Neal in exchange for Akeda Bates-Diop and Jordan Goodwin. Uh, they also got David Roddy from Memphis for Chemezi Metu and Yusa Watanabe. I liked Watanabe as a fit in Phoenix for whatever reason it didn't work out, but you would think a catch-and-shoot three-point specialist would be exactly what they need. Uh, but they get Royce O'Neal for defense. David Roddy's a tough physical player who's built more like a football player than a basketball player. Thaddeus Young is a guy who plays defense, so it's obvious that the Suns are trying to get some defense to go around their star offensive players. Uh, the Bucks they pick up Patrick Beverly uh, in exchange for Cameron Payne in a second-round pick. It's, uh, it's amazing. All of a sudden, the Bucks realize having a defensive point guard is a good thing. If only you figured it out before you got rid of Drew Holiday. But... 
Now you got Patrick Beverly. You got somebody who wants to play defense, be a leader in all the things that the Bucs need. So that could be an under-the-radar kind of big move for the Bucs, as obviously defense has been an issue for them for most of the season. And lastly, Detroit. Not a trade here. They waived Killian Hayes. And Killian Hayes was a guy I did not like in the draft. Uh, he, he was just too dependent on his left hand. He only drove with his left hand, only shot with his left hand, only passed with his left hand uh, when he was in Australia. So I just didn't understand what the big deal was with him. But that said, man was the seventh overall pick in 2020. So it's just surprising to see the Pistons move on without getting anything for him, not even like a couple of late second round picks or something. But uh, he's out there if anybody's interested. Uh, keep in mind, since Hayes was drafted, Detroit has spent very high picks on Cade Cunningham and Jaden Ivey. So I guess they just decided they didn't need uh, an extra guard there who was another high pick. I uh, don't know what the future holds for Killian Hayes, but it was still a little bit of a surprise to see somebody drafted that highly be cut this soon. Real quick note and to kind of wrap up some of the NBA talk. Uh, normally, I don't get too much into individual games in the regular season, but uh, we have the Rockets and Knicks play. And that game ended with a ridiculous foul call on Jalen Brunson Terrible. at the buzzer, fouling uh, Aaron Holiday on a three-pointer. This was a tie game at the time, so uh, you give an NBA player three chances to make one free throw, and of course Holiday makes the first two. So, uh, and this is with less than a second left, so you, you basically took away the Knicks' chance to win. This is less than four tenths of a second, so it's not like they could even run an inbounds play. Uh, just ridiculous, and for the referees to come out immediately after the game, basically, and say it was the wrong call, as if that's supposed to be comforting. You just you just get tired of seeing that. Um, refs are human; they can make mistakes, but uh, it's just 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 tough to watch. And when you're trying to convince fans that the game has integrity, and and you want people, you want these guys to act like professionals, but you let the refs take the game out of their hands. Then you keep asking Jalen Brunson about it in a press conference, trying to get him fined, basically, uh, for somebody else's mistake. Uh, I just hate that that games can end in that fashion. Uh, you know, quite credit to the Rockets. They played a good game, but that that's a game that was a fun game to watch until it got ruined at the end. And you just hate to see that as a fan, regardless of who you're rooting for. This is why you think people always have these conspiracies about scripted or are the refs betting and all these things because of stuff that happens like this. Um, gotta talk about Doc Rivers. You know, the Bucks look terrible still. I don't, I mean, I understand it's only his first few games in, but uh, I feel like it needs to be talked about since I still think that firing was unacceptable. And you gotta give somebody a full, at least let them get into the playoffs. It's ridiculous. Um, I normally don't root for Doc Rivers to fail. I kind of hope this Bucks team fails because uh, nothing against Doc, but again, I just think that firing was just atrocious. Um, and another thing I want to talk about is, uh, yeah, like you said, we don't really want to talk about um, regular season games too much, but Steph Curry hit a game-winning three-pointer um, against the Suns, and I keep seeing all these memes and people saying, you know, that Bradley Beal did the right thing. That was some of the worst defense I've ever seen, Julius. Um, I don't care what the thought process was of don't let Steph Curry get the ball in his hands. If he just stood in front of him, I don't think Steph Curry makes that shot. I, Steph Curry's a great three-point shooter, the greatest shooter we've ever seen. If you're in front of that man, he doesn't get a good look at the basket. He doesn't get to jump into his jump shot, and he probably doesn't make that shot. So... You going for the ball on the pass is dumb. You should have just stayed in front of him. 
there were however many seconds were left, and I mean, again, Steph Curry made a hell of a shot, Julius, but I just think if Bradley Beal played any type of defense, that would that would have been a different outcome for that game. If you're going to go for that steal, you have to get it. I don't care how close you get. You have to get it. It's just that simple. Bradley Beal has a lot of football in his background. He went for the pick six there. And when you go for the pick six and miss, we see what happens. Yeah, but I'm excited uh, for All-Star Weekend to get here for NBA because that means that the games are – we're getting closer to the playoffs whenever these actually mean more. Uh, regular season NBA has kind of lost me recently, Julius. You know, I used to watch the NBA, you know, religiously, and I'll start to get more into it now that NFL is uh, is over. But, you know, you just see games – like even tonight, the Heat blew out the, the Bucks, and the Bucks just look terrible, and it's just like – you feel like most of the games are like that now. Um, you don't really have that many closed games. And, and like you said, every game feels like an all-star game now. So it's just kind of it's just kind of ridiculous to watch. But, you know, hopefully it gets better and, and, and we kind of start to gear up after all-star break and get ready for the playoffs. Uh, going outside of the NBA now and just getting into a quick college basketball note, uh, Caitlin Clark is eight points away from becoming the all-time women's leading scorer. Uh, which means she'll have that record in a couple of days. And when you, if you saw Iowa's last game, she scored 31 through three quarters, but then was actually shut out in the fourth quarter of the game, shockingly. And uh, so she finished the game with 31 in a loss to Nebraska on the road. And even though you don't like to see them blow a big lead and lose like they did that game, I'm actually happy in a way because this is the kind of record that you want to set at home. And, you know, I, I get that no matter where you do it, it's special. But to do it at home, it's just a different feeling. To do it in front of all your family, to do it in front of the fan base, it's going to be a sold-out arena, no doubt. So uh, they're playing Michigan on, on Thursday. She's going to break the record there, but they're going to break it early in the game. Uh, just like we saw LeBron break the NBA scoring record, it's just different when it happens at home. So, you hate that Caitlin Clark had to struggle through that fourth quarter and that Iowa had to lose that game. But I just think it makes the moment better when she breaks it, doing it at home instead of on the road at Nebraska, which is not even a basketball kind of school, not men's or women's. They're a football school. So to, to be able to do it at home where the women's game has been embraced so much in front of your fans, you know, in front of the people you grew up with, I just think that it's a good thing for her and a good thing for the game as a whole. So congratulations in advance to Caitlin Clark, your future all-time women's leading scorer in college basketball. Yeah, that atmosphere is going to be crazy. And uh, when they came to Maryland, tickets to that game, you know, Maryland never sells out women's basketball games and they normally give away free tickets. Those tickets were going for two, three, four hundred $400 a pop. So uh, she's definitely changing the game in more ways than one. And I know that atmosphere for her to break that record in Iowa is going to be insane. So can't wait to see it. Uh, hopefully nothing crazy happens, like a freak injury or anything, to, 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 to derail it, Julius. But, um, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see her uh, break that record. Well-deserved, a great player, uh, great for the women's game. And with that, that ends our Super Bowl 58 and more uh, podcast. Uh, you know, this is just wrapping up the NFL season, and as you guys know, and, and the podcast you love, the, the draft preview um, will be coming once the draft gets closer. 
Uh, right now, we're going to focus on NBA, uh, start to get into some NHL and some other sports. MLB spring training starting soon, Julia, so I know we're both excited about that. Um, but yeah, more sports are coming up, and we're going to keep talking about them. So uh, make sure you guys are tuning in. So if you want to follow us, that's at Two Guys Four Balls Podcast. Uh, that's Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. We appreciate the listens. Thank you for listening to the Two Guys Four Balls Podcast.